Welcome back, Bible readers. This is the Rooted Podcast. This is week number nine. And this week we're going to be covering Numbers chapters 27, verse 12, all the way through Deuteronomy chapter 9. Now, last week we left off in Numbers 27, and the focus is now shifted to a new generation, the generation that would conquer the land, the promised land. And so a second census has been taken as the people prepare for their entrance into the land. But there also needs to be a change of leadership, and that's what happens in the last part of chapter 27. Now, what's unique here is that Moses doesn't choose his successor. He rather wants God to make the choice. He doesn't want a power struggle when he dies, I assume. And so Joshua is the one that's selected for this task. Moving into chapters 28 and 29, we find that there is a new, um, or a need rather, for this new generation to understand what God requires of them. The real key to a successful conquest of the promised land and living a happy life within its borders was continual fellowship with God. And that truth is same today as it was then. If we want a happy life on this side of heaven, then being in continual fellowship with God is vital. And continual fellowship with God for Israel meant understanding what he required of them. And this new generation needed a finalized and complete set of regulations for the offerings. And so these were all the offerings that God required the priests to offer for the whole nation during the year. These two chapters contain the minimum number of sacrifices that they were supposed to offer each year for the nation as a whole. Now, individuals could and did bring other sacrifices in addition to these, but the offerings described here in these chapters are as follows. First, the daily burnt offerings. Then, Sabbath day offerings. Then, the new moon festival offerings, which is also called the Feast of Trumpets. Fourth, the festival of unleavened bread in connection with the Passover. Fifth, Pentecost, or Feast of Weeks. And number six is a new one here. It's called the New Year Festival, later known as Rosh Hashanah. Number seven is the Day of Atonement, and number eight is the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, most of these festivals and celebrations have already been established at Sinai, but you may have noticed a few new ones and, and maybe a change or two to an old one. And those changes were for specific reasons as the people entered the land. Now, in addition to these regulations, they must also observe proper regulations concerning vows. And chapter 30 deals not with the procedure of making vows, that's already been talked about in Leviticus 27. Numbers 30 deals with when and under what circumstances could vows be annulled or when they had to remain in place. And in that, in that text of Numbers 30, specifically, there are four cases listed about vows that relate to women. And this is not to say that men shouldn't take a vow seriously. Anyone who took a vow should keep it. But when there is a change in a woman's status, meaning when she gets married, she was coming under the leadership of her husband. And so in that case, God allows some exceptions to the rule. Chapter 31 picks up where chapter 25 left off. If you remember back to a rebellion that took place in conjunction with Balaam, the Midianites had been the ones who seduced Israel into idolatry. And while God had punished those who sinned, he wasn't finished yet. God is the one who initiated this war, and the entire nation of Midian wasn't killed, because later on in the book of Judges, a famous judge named Gideon fights against Midian. And how can this be? Well, the reason is simple. The Midianites who lived in and near the camp of Israel, the ones responsible for leading the people into idolatry in the first place, are the ones who are killed. And so we're told that the Israelites take 12,000 men, 1,000 from each tribe, to show unity, and they go to war with the Midianites. They bring back the spoils to Moses, and Moses is not happy. 
he's quite upset, namely because they didn't kill any of the women. The women were the ones that were responsible for leading Israel into sin in the first place. So Moses tells them to kill all the males, all the male children, and married women. Only the unmarried women were permitted to live, and they could become married into the nation of Israel. Now, at this point in the text, let me add an ethical note here. We must understand that this type of war or destruction was not by any means a routine feature of Israel's military practice. Some critics of the Bible look at the book of Joshua and write God off as someone who is only interested in killing innocent people. And there is much more to God's commands. In the coming weeks, we'll pick away at some of those misconceptions. But for the time being, those of us who accept the entire Bible as the Word of God have no choice but to admit that God sometimes gives up on groups of people and chooses to destroy them. Think of Genesis chapters 6 and 7 with the flood. God gives up on humanity in general, but yet he still saves Noah and his family. In Genesis 19, Abraham begs God to save the city of Sodom and Gomorrah if there are but a few righteous people, and there are not but still Lot and his family are saved. In Revelation 20, even in the future, a scene here of the great white throne judgment, a time when all the unsaved will be judged and they will be thrown into the lake of fire. The point is that during certain phases of history, God uniquely delegates a carefully restricted part of his destructive work to his chosen nation of ancient Israel something he tightly controlled and held accountable under his theocratic or under his rule. You see, God's vendetta has never been about people or ethnicity. It's always been about sin and the wickedness that comes as a result. As you move down in your reading to chapter 32, there are a few tribes with a strange request. Can you imagine telling Moses that you didn't want to go into the land? that you'd rather live outside the land, in the desert regions? I mean, this is the land that God has promised to give Abraham nearly 500 years ago. This is the land that God had been preparing for the nation. And yet there are two and a half tribes that come to Moses and ask permission to live outside the land, Reuben, Gad, and half the tribe of Manasseh. Moses saw this request as potentially dangerous, one that might invite division among the tribes and even discourage them. But the main concern of these tribes is that they were blessed with lots of herds of livestock, and they needed lots of space for those herds to graze. And so these tribes are granted the request on one main condition, that they would take part with the other tribes in conquering the land. And when the land was conquered, the fighting men could return to their land across the Jordan. And so the tribes agree to the condition, and Moses allocates this area. This area is often called the Transjordan area. Also, before entering the promised land, Moses felt it necessary to remind the people of God's goodness and provision for them. As you look at chapter 33, you find that it's basically a review of Israel's journey from Egypt to their present spot. This review is selective, not comprehensive, and it's designed to help the Israelites recognize, first, their failure to learn from the past, and second, God's continuing faithfulness to them in spite of their inabilities. We could otherwise term this chapter as a history of God's grace and mercy towards Israel. And we could also find ourselves and our lives in that same chapter. Now, chapter 34 gives a preview of the land. The first 15 verses talk about the borders of the land. So it's giving you a geographical geographical language there. And verses 16 to 29 speak about the leaders that were responsible for dividing the land once the people possessed it. 
And these leaders were specifically chosen to help Joshua in this task. And if we're going to put this data into perspective, the land size that God was giving Israel was about the size of New Jersey. But what happens is that Israel only occupies about a third of the promised land. This was due to their failure to drive out the inhabitants, which is the main concern towards the latter end of the book of Joshua and all of Judges. Now, chapter 35 details another element of living in the Lamb, and this one comes in the form of two types of cities that God would establish. One is called Levitical cities, and one is called cities of refuge. First, we have Levitical cities, and there were 48 of them. These were towns given to the Levites because they were not permitted to get an allotment of land. Four cities are given to each of the 12 tribes. However, there tended to be more cities in tribes that had more population. Now, the job of the Levite was to teach and counsel the Israelites in the law. And so they would always live near the Israelites and not in far remote places. They would always be accessible to help the people in matters of law. The names of these town, towns excuse me, are identified in Joshua chapter 21. Now, the other type of city was called a city of refuge, and there were six cities of refuge, and each city of refuge was also a Levitical city, but not every Levitical city was a city of refuge. Are you confused yet? (laughs) Think of it this way. There were six cities in the land that would function as both a city of refuge and a Levitical city. I guess you might say that they had dual city status. And the uniqueness about the city of refuge is that it was a place of mercy and grace for God's people, a place where they could run to, literally run to, and find refuge. Here's the basic context around a city of refuge. It was a place of safety for a person who accidentally killed another person. And when this happened, the guilty person could flee to a city of refuge. If he was guilty of involuntary murder or accidental murder, then he has the right to take up residence in that city until the death of the high priest. At the death of the high priest, the person could go free. So if the high priest was older, then you might not be there for a while. But if the high priest was new in office, then you might be there for a long time. Of course, the person could also take his chances and leave the city, But if he or she did this, then the family members of the person that was accidentally killed were free to take vengeance on him or her at any time. These regulations underscore the value and uniqueness of human life. The basic human rights of people are extremely important to God. And then the last chapter of Numbers, we find that Moses again had to address the matter of inheritance by daughters. He had already said that a man who lived without sons could pass his estate on to his daughters. Now he added to the case, now added to the case was another stipulation. If these daughters married men outside of their tribe, their property would go to the tribe that their husbands were from. So this means that if these daughters want to keep their property rights, then they had to marry men within their tribe. Well, that brings us to the end of the book of Numbers, and now we move right into the book of Deuteronomy. And as we begin Deuteronomy, let me highlight a few important details about the book. First, the important reoccurring word in the book is love. And for the first time, Moses revealed that it was God's love for Israel that motivated God to deal with the Israelites as he had. For the same reason, God sent his son Jesus, because he loved the whole world. Second, the book is quoted over 80 times in the New Testament, in all but six New Testament books. Third, Jesus quoted the book more than any other Old Testament book. 
This means that this is Jesus' favorite book to quote from. Jesus answered all three of his, of his temptations in the wilderness from Deuteronomy quotations. Fourth, all the events in the book of Deuteronomy took place within just a few weeks, just before the people were ready to enter the land. So we might think of this book as Moses' farewell speech. As we move into the book of Deuteronomy, we find that in chapters 1 through 4, Moses reviews Israel's history from Sinai to the present place in the plains of Moab. Remember, this is a new generation that Moses addresses, and while this new generation may have experienced some of these events along the way, they were just children. Now, in chapter 1, verse 3, the name Yahweh appears for the first time in the book of Deuteronomy. Yahweh is when the text capitalizes the word Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. It's God's personal name, okay? And it occurs some 220 times throughout the book. This is a name for God that is the most expressive of God's covenant role with Israel. He is the covenant-keeping God who will always come through with what he has promised. And that's one of the main themes that you find running throughout this book. Now, in chapter 1 in general, Moses begins the rehearsal of Israel's history at Mount Sinai because that's where the covenant was adopted. Horeb is the term or name that Moses uses for Mount Sinai because Horeb is the name of the mountain regions that Mount Sinai is located within. Well, the Israelites had become so numerous and contentious that Moses needed help to lead the people, as the text tells us, because he could not do it on his own. So men were chosen to help Moses bear the load of leadership. And once they left Horeb, they arrived in Kadesh. And Kadesh was where Israel's failure took place. They didn't believe that they were able to take possession of the land because of the ten discouraging spies. And by the way, the phrase take possession occurs over 50 times in the book. You see, God's desire was for his people to take what they had been promised. And Moses notes that it was the people's idea to send the spies out in verse 22. But if we go back to Numbers chapter 13, it says that it was God's idea. These two verses aren't contradictory. It's likely that the consensus of the people was that they make the wise decision of doing reconnaissance of the land, and they would take that request to Moses, who is in very much, he's in favor of it. And so Moses goes to the Lord with the request, and the Lord allows it. What you'll find interesting in the book of Deuteronomy is the additional tidbits of information about events that you didn't read previously. It's as if the book fills in some of the missing information in selective places to give you a complete picture of Israel's history. In the same way, you can combine all four Gospels in the New Testament to get a comprehensive picture of the life and ministry of Christ. Well, the result of the people's unbelief is that the whole generation of adults would die in the desert, with the exception of Joshua and Caleb. After wandering in the wilderness, they resume their journey again in chapter 2. And along the way, God tells Moses not to bother the Edomites, Moabites, or the Ammonites. The reason is that these three nations are all traceable back to Abraham. Edom was given to Esau, and Ammon and Moab descended from Lot's two daughters. And notice that God said, I have given these people their lands. This indicates that it was God's prerogative to assign land to whomever he chose, and the twelve tribes of Israel would have the promised land. Now, the Amorites, on the other hand, are a different story. They were fair game. Moses goes the political route and asks for permission to pass through Heshbon, but their king refused it. It was a mistake that cost them their kingdom. Another Amorite people group on the way was the kingdom of Bashan. And in chapter 3, the people of Israel come to the kingdom of Bashan, and their king Og, he stubbornly refused to surrender. 
and they meet the same fate as the people of Heshbon and lose their kingdom. All this Transjordan area was now open to Israel as they had defeated these two kings. And the two and a half tribes want their allotment of the land to be in this Transjordan area, like we mentioned before, Reuben, Gad, and half the tribe of Manasseh. And they were granted this privilege so long as they helped their fellow Israelites conquer the land before settling in at home. Now, verse 21 of chapter 3 is important for Israel's new leader, Joshua. Moses was forbidden to enter the land because of his sin. Joshua has already been commissioned to take Moses' spot when he dies. And Moses says to Joshua in verse 21, Just as God defeated these two kings, Og and Sihon, so God will be the one, or God will be with you when you take the land and defeat all the kings therein. So he's giving Joshua some great encouragement here from what God has just done in front of him. Moving into chapter 4, and we find chapter 4 is a plea from Moses for the people to obey. And this first half of chapter 4 is taken up with a concern that the people not fall into idolatry. If they or the generations to follow begin to embrace idolatry, then God will scatter them. God could do this because only He is God and because Israel was His chosen people. That is the subject of the second half of chapter 4. And in verses 41 to 49 are sort of an interlude of sorts before Moses gives his next address to the people. These few verses detail the appointment of cities of refuge in the Transjordan area by name, Bezer, Ramoth, and Golan. So chapters 1 through 4 is Moses' first address to the people. Now he's going to make a second address to the people, and that second address is where he reviews and expands the law for this new generation. Remember, this new generation doesn't know all those parts of the law that they need to know, and they need this information as they go into the land. So Moses' second address begins in chapter 5 and goes all the way through chapter 26. And it's important for us to recognize the flow of this section, lest we get lost in all the details and in all the laws. And the way to look at these chapters is that they move from general to specific. The law code of Israel, and really any law code in general, starts with a general principles and then expounds in more details about the specifics. Because sometimes a general law might need further explanation in certain situations. We often call this case law. That means that, certain, that in certain cases where the law isn't specific, or we might say it's a gray area, further interpretation of the law is needed before a judgment can be rendered. So with that in mind, the flow goes like this. Chapters 5 through 11 are general laws and principles, while chapters 12 through 26 are specific cases when further explanation is needed. I hope that helps you see the flow of this larger section. Now after Moses makes an opening exhortation in chapter 5, he begins quickly with the Ten Commandments. That's right, Exodus 20 is not the only place you'll find the Ten Commandments. The two lists of the Ten Commandments are virtually the same with only two small differences in commandment number 10 and commandment number 4. Commandment number 10 says that you should not covenant. In the Exodus rendition, the order of what you should not covet goes from a neighbor's house and then his wife and makes no reference to his field. Because at that point, Israel wasn't getting ready to go into the promised land. Whereas in Deuteronomy, the rendition of the list goes from the wife first and then the neighbor's house and then the neighbor's field. So that change in that commandment makes sense. Now, commandment number four about the Sabbath is a little more significant, especially for what it means for us today. We must remember that the Sabbath day was a holy day. Obviously, a day cannot be holy in the moral sense, 
So the meaning of keeping the seventh day holy is the normal meaning of the word. And holy means to set apart for a particular purpose. Now the issue is that Exodus and Deuteronomy have different reasons for the Sabbath day being set apart. In Exodus, the reason for the Sabbath draws attention to the fact that God rested on that seventh day. For people that have just been delivered from Egyptian bondage by the mighty Exodus miracle, God as creator is the central truth. Therefore, it's quite appropriate that the Sabbath focus on him as creator, and they were to set apart that day to memorialize him in that fashion. In Deuteronomy, some 40 years later, creation pales in comparison to the act of redemption itself, the Exodus from Egypt. With the benefit of looking back on history, the Sabbath is now celebrated in terms of redemption rather than creation and rest. Now, for us today, this change is significant. For the Christian, the moment of greatest significance is no longer creation or the Exodus. I'm not diminishing these events. Central to a Christian's faith and experience is the resurrection of Christ. Are you ready? Which accomplished a new creation and a full redemption. No wonder the apostle set aside a new day, Sunday, as the day of commemoration of his victory over death. Christians have have observed the first day of the week, not the seventh, as a memorial of Jesus' resurrection. Now, we can talk a lot more about that, but we need to keep moving, and our time is quickly leaving us. In chapter 6, we learn that the real key to teaching, the teaching of the law, are not the priests or the Levites. It's, in fact, the parents. Parents were to be the key in communicating God's truth from generation to generation. Parents were to teach their children to fear the Lord and to love Him, and they were to teach them every time and every opportunity they had to do so. Chapter 7 follows closely behind what Moses said earlier. God had called on His people to to be completely loyal to Him, but in the land of Canaan, they would encounter temptations that might divert them from their faithfulness to God. And so chapter 7 gives full instructions about how the Israelites were to deal with these temptations. These instructions further amplify the second commandment of not making images and idols. But not only were the people in danger of idolatrous temptations, but the danger of self-reliance was also a temptation. And that's the subject of chapter 8. Because the Israelites needed to remember what God had done for them and how he had provided for them. They needed to humble themselves, to submit to his way as best. They needed to completely rely on him. In chapter 9, Israel's stubborn nature is highlighted. I need to highlight one crucial verse. Listen to what Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 6 says. And I wish I had more time to unpack this verse, but I'm just going to read it to you. I'm reading from the NLT. Listen. After the Lord your God has done this for you, don't say in your hearts, the Lord has given us this land because we are such good people. No, it is because of the wickedness of the other nations that he is pushing them out of your way. It is not because you are so good or have such integrity that you are about to occupy the land. The Lord your God will drive these nations out ahead of you only because of their wickedness and to fulfill the oath he swore to your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You must recognize that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land because you are a good people, for you are not. You are a stubborn people. Wow. The Lord just took the nation of Israel down several notches on the ladder. They should be ever so thankful to the patriarchs because God's promise to the patriarchs is what allowed this present generation to enter and possess the land. Isn't this a classic reminder to us all? It's not about what we have done, but it's all about what Christ has done for us. 
Because of what Christ has done, we can enjoy blessings in this life and the life to come. And unfortunately, on that note, we need to end our summary for the week. Next week, we'll pick up in Deuteronomy chapter 10 and get almost to the end of the book. Don't forget, email me with any questions to BibleReadingLMBC.org, and I will talk with you all next week.